from Humber College in association with the Etobicoke Philharmonic Orchestra. My name is Mark Whale and this is the Music Listening Project podcast. Today we are going to be listening to Winter from The Four Seasons by Antonio Vivaldi. And to discuss this with me, I have Mark Rechevich. Morning, Mark. Hi, hello, Mark. Nice to see you again. So let's begin by listening to the first movement of this concerto. It's played here by Alan Loveday with Neville Mariner conducting and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. So here we go. in there. So what are you hearing? Hmm. Well, in that the introductory material before the soloist comes in, I hear something that I've never heard before. What's that down in the bass? Is that a, an instrument that's not in the score? A lute, perhaps? Maybe a therable? I think that's uh, actually a harpsichord or a cembalo. So you have these different, I know it sounds incredibly dry, but there's a, a stop on it that you can kind of mute mm-hmm. uh, the plucking hmm. as the, the strings are plucked. So it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because that's not in the score and it's not written out, mm-hmm. uh, but that's part of the tradition of what they call figured bass. So the composer would write in a figure which would indicate what chord the bass player or the bass continue of which the harpsichord uh, was a member uh-huh had to play and they could then sort of fill it in or improvise around that so i think that's what you're hearing and it's true i've never heard that kind of configuration (laughs) before but this dryness uh, of of that sound is quite uh, remarkable and i think it's also enhanced if you like the dryness is enhanced by what the strings are doing so if you just listen to the violins here Now, now, I'm not a string player myself, but uh, as a string player, how do you get that kind of effect, Mark? Yeah, it's just, listen to it again. So it's it's not a full tone, is it? No, it's kind of a, a light dusting. Yeah. So basically, what you're doing is playing the bow really close to the bridge of the instrument. Uh, so to get a full sound, you have to play about an inch or three quarters of an inch away from the bridge. Mm-hmm. So you 
you move the bow towards the bridge and you get this really tight part of the string which gives you this sort of mm. uh, harsh or raspy sound. It's called sul ponticello, so it just means on the bridge. Hmm. So the other thing, there is a kind of tension here, I find, at the beginning between movement, you know, you've got this kind of heartbeat, dum, bum, 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 this, this continuous pulse uh, and very regular, uh, every, the harmony changes each bar. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is movement, and yet there's a stillness. To it, right? I, I hear that, and, and then I only mention this because the last podcast you had me listening for sleigh bells. <sighs> I, I can't help now but hearing sleigh bells here in this movement. Well, and that's obviously brought out a bit by the, the harpsichord, but yeah. And you can hear down at the bottom there the the double bass. Mm -hmm. And then and then boom that explosion of the solo violin. Yeah, what's quite interesting about the bit we've just heard, I think, is that we've had these regular chord changes all the way uh, from the beginning in that introduction. And then we get to this bit and the chord actually seems to remain the same, right? Hmm. It just, but it seems that something different is happening because you keep getting a change in, in register. As someone who's played this before, how do you think about that solar part? Are, are, are you counting it? Are you waiting for it? Does it just appear? No, that's a really good question. It's quite difficult to connect it to the bit that's come before. Mm -hmm. You kind mm -hmm. of feel it or uh, envision it as a kind of an eruption from that stillness. And, and then it's a question, I'm not really counting it. I'm more trying to play through it mm -hmm. so that it moves to the last... Mm -hmm note and yet at the same time it has to be incredibly articulate so you listen you hear that the orchestra stays on the same note here and yet the violin is obviously getting higher and higher Now it, we start to move. And uh, is that, you know, what, what key are we in there? Do we, so obviously the beginning is in this minor key, right? I think we're in F minor. Uh, but that dump a little, little, then there's almost a feeling of warmth. Or would you? What, what do I'm you think? I'm not sure yet. Okay, um, but I just want to say one one little thing about this. Uh, so Vivaldi, 
wrote a uh, a poem uh, for his four seasons. So each season has its own particular poem. And it's actually each line of verse. So there's a verse for the first moment, a verse for the second moment, a verse for the third moment. And each line of the verse is indicated where it's illustrated in the score. And so the bit we've just got to, and he talks at the beginning about shivering in the frozen snow, I guess that's where you get this kind of uh, raspy kind of Sul Ponticello effect. Um, but the bit we've just got to, he describes stamping one's feet continuously, uh, I guess, to keep warm. Right? So that, As a performer, and, and when you read lines like that, do you think about that as you're playing? Do you take that as Vivaldi's stage directions, so to speak? Or how, how, did, how, how would you tackle something like that? Good question. So I think that when I first learned this piece, I was unaware of the program. And so I'm, you know, just playing the rhythms that are indicated and I'm interpreting as I would interpret anything else. I think the stage directions or the imagery adds another level, if you like, to it. And, uh, you know, if you really do think about trying to stamp to keep warm and, and get quick, <laughs> you can kind of, it's quite a useful sort of uh, image to give a kind of metaphor, <laughs> a metaphorical guidance to how you might play that. Right. So, Do you think that there's a way to convey shivering or... Or something like this with your fingers or with your bow, something that you would do? Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's always a tension, isn't there, in playing the right notes and the right rhythm and the right time against an expressiveness where you're exceeding or pushing the boundaries of rhythm and beat and exactitude. And so this, I guess, that metaphor, that idea of kind of stamping your feet in this moment gives that edge to the metronomic. You might go... It sort of adds more of an urgency to it. But, I mean, it's not certainly reducible to that. And I think certainly you don't need to have that to understand what's going on. That you've been reading from Vivaldi's sonnet... Is this something that he would have given in a program to members of the audience? Or, or how would you like your listeners to think about what he's writing alongside what they might be hearing? Well, again, I think it's a, a, a useful... I think at least listeners in the past have told me that, that it helps them, gives them a hook. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's just another way of articulating or making oneself self-conscious of what's going on. So you get to a particular spot. I mean, there's obviously a way in which images can take you away from the music so you stop actually listening to what's going on because you're so concerned with the picture in your head. Mm -hmm. But there is also a way, I think, in which uh, you can still focus on the sounds and the sounds and the image become, in a sense, fused. And it helps you to articulate it because you think, oh, right, you know, oh, I've got to that bit. And now I kind of am recognizing that as a thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, maybe before you knew that bum, but a little, little, and bum, 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 bum was the stamping of the feet, you might not have even consciously recognized that as a Something thing. Something distinct, right? Yeah. 
So I think it helps. You know, it's a bit like, you know, you've talked about bird watching in the past. And uh, I think knowing the name of a bird and and being able to identify it is a way of articulating your surrounding mm-hmm. and, and it gives you a sense of self-empowerment, I guess. And I think in the same way, I mean, that's really what we're doing in these podcasts is trying to encourage people to become aware. Or locate of, themselves yeah, within exactly, the music. Exactly, and become aware of what they're, they're hearing and be able to, to articulate that more to themselves. Uh, so let's just do the stamping the feet. Stamping. I mean, I think just to, to your point or to what we were talking about before, um, to do with the kind of metronomic timing and the kind of spilling over or the exceeding of that metronomic time. I mean, the whole of this section, you, it's, it's, you know, spelt out for you because you've got this cello, mm-hmm. basso, continue part going dun, 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 dun. And as a soloist, you have to fit with that precisely. I mean, that's what ensemble's about. And yet, when you, as a listener, you're not, if it's played well, it's never reducible to simply clock mm-hmm. time, right? It's uh, The time is kind of subsumed by the music. The music becomes everything, right? And it's only when you listen objectively to it or remove yourself from it, you think, okay, so yeah, there's a little pulse going on there. Um, so it's quite interesting that tension between so musical time exactly. working differently from clock time. Yeah, and yet at the same time, for the music to work, it has to exist in both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's just gorgeous that the contrast between the high violin and the bass. If you're into the program, this is the chattering of the teeth. (laughs) 
I'm trying to think why it's so good. Yeah, it is good. No offense to you as a violin soloist, but here I find myself listening to the ensemble. No, absolutely. I, I, and I, you know, credit to these musicians, credit also to the quality of this recording. I'm hearing things I've never heard before. That harpsichord player is doing things that um, mm. I've never heard another accompanist do in this piece. And that do 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 keeps coming back at, at, at certain times. A, a while back, just as as the solo part was exploding out again, he was or she was doing this little tinkering around with chords. There was a tling, 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 just just dropping the slightest little chords. And that, as the rest of the ensemble was going, bum, 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 it, it was just the nicest effect. And then, then I kept hearing that figure again, that doo 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 doom. Is that this bit here? Yes, lovely. Yeah, what I and what I was going to say uh, is, you know, again, why is this so good? Harmonically, it's so satisfying. Hmm. Just and I, you know, I can't really express. I, I have no idea what chords it's going to, but there is a a constant change. Uh, it it's never tedious, no. right? It's never. No, and, and that's the old hack about Vivaldi, a thousand. Concertos, or, or what was the, what was the joke? He wrote one concerto a thousand times. Right. I, I, I'm maybe I'm in the minority for really thinking that what what he does with such slight means, yeah, uh, it's really quite incredible. And, and 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 he leaves also, as I'm noticing today, he leaves space for the players to be mm-hmm. free. And and the textures are constantly so. So to me, it's the, these changes in harmony which is so exquisite, and then the different textures. And so you're going to hear the bit that we've just got to, or the teeth-chattering bit, uh, the bass actually drops out. And now... So it's much more in the treble. So it's actually just violas who are giving us that bass Mm -hmm. line there. And then again, this kind of texture of this kind of biting, springing bow. I'm still hooked on this harmonic change. Please, let's so let's just, explore this one uh, a little bit um, more. And the stamping of the feet. I'm interested in just listening to the harmonic, uh, the descent of the the line there. Shall we stamp along with it? Let's just see if we can get that again. See, I don't even think it's actually that original, but the stamping business. Because now, you, now besides the sleigh bells, I'm stamping my feet by the fire, <laughs> trying to warm them. 
No, but I'm not even sure that the progression is that original. Uh, but it's the way he treats it. So the dee da 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 dee dum. Yeah, so I, I think I think that for me is is maybe Vivaldi's greatness is yeah. to take something like a chord progression which is actually fairly a standard, Trite, yeah. uh, and then transform it through these textures, through uh, as you say the the room or the space for the players to improvise. So earlier, Mark, you were talking to me about a recording that took this notion of improvisation to another level. Uh, the group you were talking about was called Red Priest. I believe it is a British group, and I guess it's named after Vivaldi, who was known uh, in his own time as the Red Priest. Anyway, this group's led not by a solo violin, but by a recorder player. Uh, let's listen to a little bit of their recording uh, to see how it compares to the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields recording. just getting going just we're just going to listen to that little bit so what is going on there mark so oh. what are the differences well it's all the effects that you talked about at the beginning just heightened i mean they're really getting drama out of what they're doing all the lows are lower all the highs are higher and what do you think about the substitution of the violin? I think to the it's recorder? fantastic. As a flutist myself, don't you think it sounds I, a bit like we suddenly have this bird who's kind of? Well, I do, and maybe that's why I like it. As <laughs> you were alerting, alluding to my hobby earlier, um, and I think that one of the reasons I drifted to this recording and why I liked it so much is probably like many people, I got tired of hearing uh, the standard pieces performed in less than standard ways. And so th I found this incredibly exciting. And it was a sense uh, of the piece being alive again, something new being done with, with this work that I'd heard a hundred times. Mm, it's interesting. I wonder what Vivaldi would have thought. But I, I, I get a sense that there are a bunch of minstrels who come into the, big, the great hall and there's a dinner time and here's their performance. And what are these people doing to entertain the rich folk in front mm. of them? That's and they're pulling out 
all the stops with this piece. But the, the substitution of the recorder for the violin, or the yeah, the recorder doesn't for the bother violin. me in the slightest. But no, I know, and uh, but it is interesting that it was really the Baroque era that brought in this idea of actually having specific, uh, specified instrumentation. Sure. And that prior to that, the Renaissance, it was pretty much you had a piece of music could be played by anything. You know, although and Bach so, himself would would, right. would 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 concerti for one instrument would often become concerti for others. Handel did the same. So let's just keep going for the moment. like we've gone techno. Another thing that I think is just crazy about this recording is, um, say you wanted to make music, great music, and and you didn't have a full symphony orchestra at your disposal. It was you and four other friends who wanted to hang out and perform. I mean, to me, this is what they're doing here. Mm-hmm. How can we have fun with our wine on Friday night playing great music? Aren't there actually only four of them? I think it's just a few yeah. people who are performing here. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, I've never heard the recorder played that fast. I'm not sure how you tongue that fast. How do you tongue that fast? Is this a double tonguing, and where you need to in the other movements, triple tonguing. Okay. <laughs> you can so, do it. So it's that a, was the... same way you do your bow strokes. Yeah. So that was from the sublime to the sublime. Uh, that was Red Priest uh, performing the first movement of Valdi's concerto, uh, Winter from the Four Seasons. And before that, we heard Alan Loveday performing with Neville Mariner and the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. So it's been a pleasure talking to you once again, Mark. Thank you, Andrew. Stay warm. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you are listening on the EPO website, we invite you to let us know what you think via the survey link beneath the icon for the podcast. Should you be interested in becoming a part of the research project these podcasts are related to, please email us at themusiclisteningproject at gmail.com. That's themusiclisteningproject, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much.